Welcome to the Joy of Home Cheesemaking podcast. Join us as we delve into the fun and science behind home cheesemaking. Well, welcome to the second episode of the Home Cheesemaking Podcast. Uh, our website is joyofcheesemaking.com, and you can email us at podcast at joyofcheesemaking.com. And with me today is Debbie Driscoll of the Hollywood District in Portland. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. <laughs> and we're here to talk about cheese. Debbie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in cheesemaking? Sure. Um, I guess about... Probably about three years ago, I honestly don't know what instigated this, but my husband and I started thinking, oh, we should make cheese. And maybe it's just because we were making all sorts of other things, like I've made soap and bread and he makes beer and I don't know, just always want to understand how something's made. And uh, and so we started collecting books on cheese making and things and really studying it for about a year before even trying our first cheese. Right. So so do you remember what the first um, inkling you had that you could make cheese at home? Did, did you heard about it on... Oh, well, my parents made cheese when I was growing up. So oh, I grew okay. up in upstate New York and like out in the country, really rural. And my parents are kind of the same way. They just like to make all sorts of things. And, cool. uh, and so when I was younger, I remember, I remember my parents making cheese... And I knew that they had cheese-making books. I don't remember it really well. I think it was when I was really young. Yeah, yeah. Did, so they were on a farm, or yeah. where did they get their milk from? Um, Probably from our neighbor who was a farmer. Oh, cool. Because okay. I just asked my dad about this when he visited a few weeks ago, and uh, and he said that, yeah, there was a farmer down the street that he was able to get the milk from when he did it. Cool, cool. And um, I I always uh, mention you you've uh, done demonstrations of cheese making. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah that was kind of happenstance. So so over there's a there's a really great cheese shop in town called Foster and Dobbs, right? And, uh, and they host a, um, a, what do they call it? Like a cheese maker. Do it yourself. Do it. Yeah, DIY, DIY cheese, cheese makers yeah. club. And so um, so I found out about this before I even started making cheese, and I just got super enthused, and uh, and so went over there and joined them. And, uh, and then I started like somewhere around there was when I started making mozzarella and ricotta and, uh, soft cheeses in particular. And, uh, and they needed, they were definitely looking for, you know, what sort of topics can we have each, each week or, you know, each month when we do these meetings. And, uh, and so, so I said, I'd be happy to do a mozzarella cheese making demo, which I did. It was probably the messiest demo they've ever (laughs) hosted there. I had, I was just like there was way everywhere, and so I, you know, tried to help her clean up afterward. But it was fun. It was a good down and dirty time making mozzarella. Cool, cool, yeah. I, 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 I always impressed me. I, I, I have yet to do a demo like that, but um, I, some someday I'm going to have to. Yeah, and mozzarella is a good one. That's a good. I think yeah. it's a good party trick because it doesn't take too long. Yeah, I think yeah. the first time I met you, you were doing making mozzarella yeah, at a party. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I just brought some feta that didn't was awful, awfully salty. So, it was still good, though. It was still okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> In its freshness, it was really delicious. It was, it was, it was amazing. It, was, it worked. It was, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Um, well, cool. So, um, so you just went to a really cool 
class. Yes. And I, so, um, and I, even before you went to that class, I was very interested in learning more about it. Yeah. So, so what was it that you went to? So I just took um, an introduction to practical cheesemaking as the title of the course at Oregon State University. Uh, it happens to be the same university I took my undergraduate uh, mathematics degree in, or that's where I got it from. And uh, so it was kind of fun to go back to Corvallis and hang out on campus and see everything again. And uh, to go to the food science building, which I had only been to, um, well, I took one class, though I had one of my math classes ended up being in there because mm-hmm. they had a large auditorium. Hmm. So it was weird. The only reason I would go there when I was at school and um, was, and was for this one math class. And I thought food technology was a pretty weird. They didn't have ice cream there? That's, that's the only no. thing I remember about the food science building at my university. Yeah. The, the, they, you know, what I do remember was that uh, they, after you left class, they'd try to um, accost you and oh. try and get you to come and be part of tasting panels. Ah, and you didn't want to do that? Or was it like weird? Well, you weird always stuff? had another class to go to. or oh. you wanted, And and you'd think, what are they going to make me taste? Mm-hmm. And um, of course, now I'm. it would be really interesting to be part of that. And yeah. Be, um, uh, now we I, know. Now I know. Now I have a, a whole different view on cooking and yeah. eating food and technology and yeah. science behind food be, yeah. it always makes me worried when they call it food science it yeah seems like they're engineering something that that was really a, yeah. food shouldn't be engineered like but yeah like processed cheese or something yeah it, something I, cheese I think whiz. that's what they did at nc state where i went yeah. to school but i, I don't know Maybe yeah, I they think made natural things too that they have a really big brewing department there oh. um, like the brewing and winemaking and uh, and they have elizabeth Goddick there who taught this class and she's a big um proponent of artisan cheese making and that's really what the uh, class was about. It was um, it was really geared towards getting an artisan cheesemaker up and running. That, okay, that so was, it wasn't it wasn't like production level, you know, like people with farms that are that want to become like serious cheese production houses. It was more maybe you have right. a goat in your backyard and you want to make some cheese or something. Right. It, it was it was it was really encouraging the start startup artisan cheesemaker, someone who either has access to milk or is a farmer. Uh, there were there was um, two people who were sent in by Tillamook, our local oh, really? big mass-produced um, ch- uh, cheese factory huh. on the coast here in Oregon. Why? Um, the, well, they were like they were uh, they're just starting working there, and it was part of their uh, training to be sent to this class to to learn more about how what the techniques are behind making cheese. Hmm, oh, that's interesting. And it was really interesting to talk to them, and hopefully, they, I asked them if I could get a tour of the plant, and they said, "Well, maybe we can." Hook you up with the right guy. They said, "If yeah, maybe if you uh, put you on put Tillamook on your website, they'll probably be happy to do that." So, I'm, there you go. I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lead I have to follow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was um, the person who came the furthest was from Texas, and he was a yogurt maker. He had had a farm. Actually, he was a airplane airplane pilot, like a, a commercial airplane pilot huh. who started his own you know farm. He started set up a retirement business, I think, and. Um, he wanted to learn about. He came all the way from tech from Texas to learn about making cheese. Wow, they and don't have any cheese making classes in Texas. I've well, that's a good. I don't know. Huh? Maybe, Maybe the f- we're just extra into it here. Yeah, yeah. It I seemed, don't know. I think we do have a. a um, I don't know. A cult, some kind of culture here, food culture here, that spawns that <laughs> cheese I, culture. It's like there's the Northeast with uh, in Vermont and right, yeah, and Wisconsin. They have a serious cheese culture, mm-hmm, but I think we're. Mm-hmm. Starting up our own cheese culture here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? There and then there there were a lot of uh, home cheesemakers there too. People who okay. had never made cheese before. Really? 
people who had just seen Lisbeth got a, saw her uh, do a um, a talk and and just came to see for the class, which and it was not a cheap class. Yeah, I think this person lived locally, so that made it less expensive for them. Oh, okay. I mean, the, it was a two day, it was a three day class. You had the option of taking two days. Uh, the third day was uh, going out to visit a artisan cheese plant. Uh, like it was uh, at River's Edge Cheese Cheese Factory. Or... Did you go to that? No, I didn't. Okay. I, have I, you been there before? No. Have okay. you? No. No. I'd... We'll have to have a field trip there. That'd be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I I skipped that, and I on the last day was the kind of it was all one hundred percent geared towards the artisan cheesemaker because they had someone coming in from the um, uh, FDA. Oh, FDA to come tell them what the regulations were. And how oh, to, so like if you wanted yeah. to sell it at Saturday Market or something right. like that, you yeah. know what the regulations were. If you're actually going to sell it, right. then you ha- there's a whole bunch of regulations. You have to f- you mm-hmm. have to be an approved licensed cheese plant uh, mm-hmm. and meet a lot of uh, regulations. There, it was very interesting actually to hear um, about the regulations. Uh, uh, it came give you another perspective on sanitary conditions you need to keep. Um, or if, if you're going to sell it, don't you essentially need a, an, another kitchen? Yeah. To, like it, it almost has to be separate from your, you well, know, there's the so many requirements. Like you need to have a floor that drains to a center, like anywhere you, anywhere you drop water or liquid on the floor, it has yeah. to drain to a center drain. It's a good idea overall. You could just yeah, close but how, down your kitchen. <laughs> well, there's like the whole floor would have to be sloped yeah. and covered with something you can sanitize. Hmm. Um, there you have there's uh what else they have you know you have to have industry level sanitation like high chlorine uh or ammonia quant uh solutions i'm not sure what the right term for that is but there's this quant foam that we you'd walk in as you go into the cheese plant there there's uh it's sterilized the boots you're, you're working in wow and yeah. so and i assume also the refrigeration so maybe the right. the refrigeration setups that we have in our homes for our cheese making might not make the cut yeah you need to be able to clean them out completely it's to- totally like stainless steel interior uh-huh. stainless steel racks hmm. um yeah if you, as long as you're not selling cheese you can do a lot of things but if you're selling it there's a lot of precautions that have grown up over the years in the fda and mm-hmm. regulators to make sure you're not um not poisoning people okay so what were i'm really curious as to you so you took this artisan cheese making class and right. and with a bunch of artisan cheesemakers yeah who are budding artisan cheesemakers maybe exactly but what were what were some of the things that you got out of the class that i don't know what what, what were some of the best things that that you learned or, or the things that are you think will help you the most as a cheesemaker so it's kind of hard for me to come up with one thing that I got out of the class that I really liked. There was a lot of little things. There was uh, The class was set up as a basic cheesemaking class, as if um, you'd never done, heard of it before, didn't know any of the, of the steps. So, um, But they uh, the best thing about it was they said, it, we don't have to follow this agenda that we've set up for us. You ask any questions you want, and we can go anywhere you want with talking about cheese. And so I set up in front of the class and asked a lot of questions, and that was... that. That's pretty much what I got out of it. Asking all kinds of questions that I brought with me. I had a list with that I brought with me and tried to get through during the two days I was there. And there were a lot of like tips and tricks I found. Like the biggest, my I think one of my favorite things I found out was the use of um, chlorine as sanitizer. The, in order to sanitize in, in a in a cheese production environment, you use a sanitation solution that is low enough concentration of chlorine that you don't have to rinse off 
what you sanitize because there's spore, there's bacteria in the water, in tap water, even though that's chlorinated and it's safe to, for drinking. It's if you get if there's one piece of bacteria, one bacterium in there, and it gets in your cheese and it gets to grow, then you have a problem in, mm-hmm. in a production environment that you you can't do that. So you sanitize uh, with a chlorine solution that's between 50 and 200 parts per million. And I did a calculation and worked out that's about two teaspoons per gallon. Two, of, teaspoons, two, per two gallon. teaspoons of household bleach per gallon, um, uh, which is lower than what I've heard before. But I, so that, that was interesting. And I also found out, um, talk, they talked about um, sanitation only works after you have something clean because chlorine is wiped out by organic material. So there's any dirt or any food or anything on whatever you're sanitizing uh, that will um, deactivate the the chlorine the sanitizing solution. So does it have to be chlorine bleach, or can you use oxygen bleach for something like that? Or does it have to be chlorine? Uh, like what's oxygen like 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 uh, OxyClean or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, it's just a different. It doesn't have chlorine in it, and I. I don't know how much better it is for the environment, but I've been trying to use that instead of chlorine when I when I need to use a bleach. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what the sanitation. I think does OxyClean have any chlorine in it, or does it have no, less? No, it doesn't have any chlorine in it. I it's wonder a, how that works. A, and I, but I'd also don't know. Like I I, it's probably not a good idea to use because I know you can use it on laundry, but right. you don't hear about it in food applications right. at all. So you probably do need to use the chlorine bleach. You, I, one of the things they mentioned was that chlorine. Sanitizer is the only thing you can use if you're doing organic cheese. Really? Yeah, because if they had the ruthers, the organic people had the ruthers, ruthers, they'd say um, you couldn't even use that, but you have to use something to sanitize. So Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of other sanitizers you can use, but those are out if you're organic. Interesting, because the main way I've done sanitization... And my cheeses in the past is boiling water, just yeah, boiling everything yeah. a lot. Yeah, and that's that's obviously safe, and that works. Uh, you have to um, even getting something to 190 degrees is good enough to kill most things. If, if something's at 190 degrees for 15 seconds, that's what. If you're doing high temperature pasteurization of milk, that's that's what they do. 15 seconds for 190 degrees. So why but, not continue to use the boiling water method? Yeah, well, that's um, that's fine. Um, there's I I've made some of my old old molds out of PVC, and I tried I made the mistake of using uh, sanitizing those in boiling water, and they shrunk and molded and warped. And that um, I have some uh, pl- uh, food grade plastic mesh net matting that I've used to put cheeses on while I'm aging it, and that also shrank and de- deformed in hot water. So yeah, there that's was, probably pretty. Toxic yeah. when you're yeah. plastics like that. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not. It's just. It doesn't work. It's, it deforms the plastic and they're not useful anymore. So there's some things you. Yeah. So like if you're sterilizing anything, stirring things you're stirring with or the pots. Like when I start using a, a pot, I always boil water in it first before before making cheese in it. But anyway, so but a, a low a, a low no rinse solution of chlorine is what they're used, and so I've changed my sanitizing habits at home to do that same thing to have it. and they also um when you're in the uh, factory they uh have this a bucket of sanitizer uh, always around that you just put your hands in and then every time you you go by it just without thinking about it and that way you can put your hands in the cheese to see if the, 
the curd set or, or, or not worry about your hands are, are, are sanitized so you can use them however you like. So you can do that with thermometers and your spoons. And do you, yep. do you like rinse your pot out first with, with the chlorine solution? I, I, it's easier to boil, I think. Yeah. It's, and it, it's so much surface area, it's easier to boil mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So I, I still boil. I have, I've, only, I've only made one cheese since since this class, so uh, I haven't really um, gotten... To, I actually, I didn't even make a cheese. I just uh, uh, put my months, my rinse... What did I do? I can't remember what I did. <laughs> I, I, oh, Some I, Munster cheese? Oh, no. You know what I did is um, I came I came back from uh, OSU with a whole bunch of camemberts. We made camembert in class, and they there were literally like, uh, I don't know, maybe 40 camemberts when we were done. And I they were going to throw them out. And so all the students said, I'll take some home. I'll take it home. Of course, yeah. And so I went to Fred Meyer's and, and bought some Tupperware containers and... And brought back as much as I could without seeming greedy, trying to seem greedy, not seem greedy. But I, it's filled up, uh, filled up my uh, aging fridge. And so I, what I did is I uh, created a sanitizer solution to sanitize all the uh, Tupperware containers. Or not Tupperware, but they're like little disposable uh, what containers. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Gladware containers. Yeah, exactly, Gladware. Yeah, yeah. And... Was that one of the tricks they showed you? Because you, you just gave me a tour of your uh, cheese storage facilities here. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a great idea to put things in Tupperware. And I didn't know if that would still allow them to breathe enough. Was it something you talked about in the class? Well, the problem, the reason, what I'm doing there is uh, there's a fan in that wine fridge that dries out cheeses if you don't have them protected. And I read on um, one of the websites I buy uh, supplies from the cheesemaker.com. Uh, the guy who runs that su- uh, was suggesting you basically using it. He shows a picture of a Tupperware container or a Gladware container with some kind of mat at the bottom for aging. And that was his Camembert aging container. So, so the so, the hack job of aging containers yeah. is to use a sushi mat at the yeah. bottom of a Tupperware or Gladware container. Exactly. For example. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, and it seems to work okay. And mm-hmm. I and I um, boiled those the sushi mat um, and sterilized them. So they were nice and wet and sterile, hopefully, uh, before I put the cheese on them to, to age. Yeah, that seemed like a good idea. Because at my house, I'd have to, I, I um, to keep it at a really constant temperature, I need to use the fridge downstairs, and that's usually dedicated mostly to beer. So mm-hmm. I definitely don't want the bacteria from the cheese getting to the beer and then other whatever other molds are in there. Because, you know, the fridge isn't necessarily sterilized all no. the time. Yeah. And the, um, that's, that, that's a good thing. The, and then this plant, interesting, there it's... They have the cheese plant instead of an OSU, and next door to it they have the winemaking plant, uh, and and yeah, it's a wine. Then there's like these doors between them that are open right now, and they're working at creating doors, you know, building the doors to, to separate the two. But they said that they're getting yeast from the wine oh, and the cheese, which is a problem, and they're getting bacteria from the and starter cultures from the cheese and the wine. Hmm. So, and their their goal is to try and make this an actual approved cheese plant down at OSU. Oh, that's good because already Washington State University, I noticed at the Wedge Cheese Festival, had their own cheese they were marketing. Yes. So, I think we need to get Oregon in shape and get our colleges uh, making work- some good production quality <laughs> cheese. Yep, I think they're on their way. All right. Ma- actually, Mark Bates was the other uh, teacher there, and he is the former head of the WSU Creamery. Oh, interesting. So he was really cool to listen to. 
I think one of the things that um, that I would have really enjoyed about a class like this is just seeing cheese made because I've I've gotten the Cheese Queens books and mm-hmm. watched videos online and and everything, but. I don't think there's a substitute to seeing what what your curds are supposed to look like at any given point, or right. I don't know, just kind of seeing it done. It would, did did that? Did you feel that helped you, or or yeah. maybe you're a more advanced cheesemaker? Well, than I don't I am. know. I know I'm I'm certainly not that advanced a cheesemaker, but I yeah, it was great. Um, I, when I got started, I took a class from Mary Rosenblum, and she it was. I think there's nothing that no substitute for taking a hands-on class where you can actually see what a clean break is and what all the steps are. Because I, I got the, the Ricky Carroll's book before I went to that class because I, I decided I want to make cheese. And then, I then my wife surprised me with a class at uh, Kukulon Farms, and uh, just seeing it done like made it all clear. Because reading it in the book, there's like you add starter and and that seemed like a magic, a magic thing. Like where do you get the starter from? Where how, how do you know when it's done? How, and then you add this rennet, and then it just didn't make sense until you saw it done. So, see, actually seeing it done in huge quantities, they were doing, we were doing twenty gallon batches at, of, OS, at, at OSU. OSU, yeah, and and thirty twenty and thirty gallon batches of of gouda and camembert and mozzarella. That's what you're doing in the class, or that's what they're doing there. In we're the- we're all doing it. the classes. No, the this is what we the class was doing it. Oh, okay. The, the class that we were we had the plant to ourselves and we were making that's what we were doing. We had wow. it all to ourselves. And it scales down. Did you understand well enough how it would scale down to your production size, or was there still? You know, I asked about that, and they just said um, they didn't really give me any hints. They said just divide it by if you're making a two gallon batch, divide it by ten to get from twenty. Really? To 10. Yeah. And it, oh, I wonder if it would really work. I don't know if I, I believe that. It seems like there's, yeah, I don't believe it either. I think that, but it's, I think it's up to people like us to figure it out. Like to, to take a commercial recipe, scale it down, and then see what you need to do to alter it. Because I, I did ask that question because that, that was that's the obvious question. How do you get this down to homemaking? And I said, well, you just kind of wing it. And that that was another thing they they did say is like there's a, there's a lot of art to cheese making, and you can't we can't tell you exactly what to do to do it right. You can kind of learn from experience hmm. that's kind of wing it i guess so Which I, is can, I feel hard like sometimes. i can do that with some things yeah. like with even with baking now yeah i can wing it a bit but i don't think i'm quite it's gonna take me a while with cheese yeah it's a little daunting oh yeah and i think one of the things if you're if you're starting out you're and you need to wing it because you don't because your recipe you're following isn't good you just you, you do what you you make the cheese continue through um and if it doesn't taste horrible, just eat it anyway. If it doesn't taste bad, then it's probably just, it's not going to hurt you. Eat uh, your mistakes. Eat your mis. Well, yeah, yeah. If it's if it's edible, then you, then enjoy it and call, name it after the cheese that it resembles. Rather than if you, you're trying to make a gouda and it turned out like a cheddar, call it cheddar. Uh, that's an important trick. I've yeah. learned that in many <laughs> yeah. in many areas, especially in cooking. Always rename. Yeah, it, if, if it tastes good and but it wasn't what you're trying for. That's fine. Good for you. Good for you. you. Made cheese. Yes, it is. It's true. It's it's a good thing to bring to parties. Pretty much no matter what, as long yeah. as it doesn't, it's not too offensive. <laughs> so one of the things you, you mentioned briefly before was that you had you talked some about cultures and starters and and things like that. And that's one area that's a little bit mystifying to me. I mean, I use starters in my cheese, but I just am kind of following the recipe, not fully understanding. So, so. 
tell me a little bit about what you learned there and any any tips or tricks about using cultures that you might pass along. So there was, um, so basically when I learned about cheese, there are two types of cultures, the mesophilic and the thermophilic cultures. Mesophilic just basically are uh, bacteria that work better at lower temperature and thermophilic go at a higher temperature and you use thermophilic for cheeses that have cooked curds like Swiss um, or element emmental, I think it's called it the correct pronunciation. Um, I call it emmental. Emmental, is that right? Emmental. 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 Okay. One of those two, but I'm also <laughs> yeah. not Swiss <laughs> or French. Um, so in those cheeses, you you bring the cheese up to a higher temperature, and Parmesan too is one of those. Would you bring it up to a much higher temperature to get rid of the water, and you need a bacteria that will survive that. Uh, one of the th- so one of the things they sh- told us was um, when you get those cultures, they're usually cultures of many different bacteria, or at least a few different strains of bacteria. In a uh, in a plant, there's um, a, a virus that attacks um, uh, starter bacteria called phage. Bacteriophage is the full name. In a plant. Yeah, in in a cheese plant. In a cheese there's, plant, there's if, a virus that. There's this happens? virus that attacks uh, bacteria. Yeah, and, and it, they're usually specific to certain strains of, of, of starter bacteria, of lactobacillus bacteria. And it, once they get the plant gets infected with this phage, it's really hard to make cheese because the 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 bacteria will start dividing and 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 going at their work to make the milk uh, acidified milk. But then this phage will, will get start infecting them and overtake it and then kill all the starter bacteria. Interesting. So there's all these procedures to try and get rid of phage from your uh, from your plant and um, yeah, it's that it, it's kind of an interesting thing and it's just it's like this tiny little virus that you know the same like the virus that attacks us it injects its DNA into the bacteria and then within this bacteria it, it replicates and then causes the bacteria to explode and send its phage everywhere and if you're using starter cultures from a from a freeze-dried packet like for home cheese making this will never be a problem for you but if you're like me and you are cheap you try and uh, um, culture up your your starter from like just a tiny eighth of a teaspoon in a mason jar full of milk and you keep reculturing that you know i I make that freeze the cubes use then use that for my cheese making and then when i'm done make more take one ice cube and reculture up a batch so freezing doesn't get rid of the virus? No, no. It's happy being frozen. Just like the bacteria is happy being frozen. doesn't mind. Um, yeah, no. The, the, the it, Eventually, if you keep doing that, you'll probably get a phage infection and lose your starter culture. But then you just get another, whatever, $1 packet of freeze-dry culture and start over again. But you probably wouldn't know until your cheese doesn't turn out right, which might be six months later. But, that would be a bummer. Yeah. What else did I learn? There's... He um, he did. Mark Bates mentioned specifically for the home cheese maker. If you're using freeze dry packets of of starter culture or mold or back brevi bacterium linens, bee linens for munch and che- munster cheese, don't ever put the spoon inside the packet because that's a you're, then you're bringing whatever, however dirty the spoon is, you've contaminated your your starter culture with that. Oh, that was, so that was kind of it. That was interesting. I'm lucky my cheeses have turned out so well so far. <laughs> yeah, and I, just before when I recorded the last podcast, I'd put my spoon in my packet of bee linens to, to get out a small little sixteenth of a teaspoon, and uh, now that I, I felt guilty. But did oh, they t- 
Oh, go ahead. did they talk at all about mixing your own bacteria? Like, I don't even know if you can get like bacteria separated out because I did notice that on the mesophilic starter that I have that I keep in the freezer, there's a list of probably I don't know like six four or, things. Yeah, yeah, six or four things. Yeah, that are are in there, and I know that that really affects the flavor of the cheese in the end. Right. So. If you could tinker with the ratios or which types of bacteria are in there, um, yeah, I, I but think I don't know if you can buy individual bacteria. They don't sell them normally because if they don't want to get a phage attack or get something that's you wouldn't normally use just a single starter uh, for, because if you get these phage that attack one strain, then it would take that that complete strain out. I don't, so I don't know. Um, I I would just I think they do sell diff, well different. Um, Cheese, you know, d- cheese making sources will sell different packets. And there's, uh, they'd recommended, uh, in addition to New England cheese making, which is Rookie Carroll's company, they recommended Dairy Connection as a good source of cheese making supplies. And then one of my other favorites is the, the cheesemaker.com, uh, for cheese making supplies. And they, I've noticed they sell different starter bacteria mixtures for different cheeses. Um, like different, there's like mesophilic A, mesophilic B. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And yeah, because I, I think I don't think we got our starter at um, Ricky Carroll's company at yeah, New England. We yeah. got it from one of the other ones. And yeah, we have. I'm always incessantly reading the label to try to figure out which one I'm using and right. which what the difference is. Did you get two of them, different kinds? Um, or? Yes, I think we did. I think we have two mesophilic starters okay. right now, and I think I've only used the one. Like I'm essentially treating them as if they're the same thing and i think i'm just i'm just trying to use up the one before i go on to the other one yeah in every recipe i've seen it doesn't call for a specific mesophilic no type. it just says mesophilic or but maybe if you got the recipe directly from them maybe right. they would call for it. it yeah for a like a commercial plant they'll say mm-hmm. this type with this yeah this strain this this mixture that's yeah exactly but you can tell from there the little piece of paper that comes with it that people definitely do wing it because they say that this starter is good for these few cheeses and you just you know whatever you're doing just add a quarter teaspoon per gallon right and there you go yep that's the recipe <laughs> yep yep exactly so cool. but there's some yeah. i did notice that there's some overlap in the in the types of cheeses like maybe both of them make camembert for example but but the one mean types will, of bacteria yeah, yeah the well between mesophilic a and mesophilic yeah. B starter yeah. there's definitely overlaps like you could still make camembert with both for example right, right but you would maybe only do some other type of cheese with the one yeah so. yeah and it seems like thermophilic even yeah exactly what you said mm-hmm. that like some of the bacteria are in both uh but but then there's some there's some that are only in thermophilic mm-hmm. so it's whatever cocktail whatever cocktail they come up with so I'm looking at the outline of the um, some of the topics you covered in the class, and I see this University of Gloof's cheese case. So I'm, I'm Guelph. interested. Guelph. It's Guelph. It's a Canadian Canadian university. Uh, they they I, we you know we asked what books should we get uh, look at to get more technical information, and they said that they when they teach classes on cheese making they don't even use a book they use a website, and that's the University of Guelph's, uh, which is spelled. Let me make sure I get this right. G U E L P H. Um, if you look at Guelph University of Guelph Cheese, you'll find it on the internet. And they have a, a lot of uh, scientific uh, literature written on the web uh, out there, and they also have some, you know, uh, commercial size quality recipes 
which I suppose we can scale down. So that they that's they they recommended that site several times for getting information and, Interesting. and, and commercial size recipes. I'll be sure to check that out. And then uh, next to my list is uh, Tome. Have you heard of Tome? Tome. I cheese? feel like I feel like the name is familiar, but I have no idea. What, like I can't recall what it was right is, now. I've I've seen Tome molds for sale. Yes. On on various sites or to people talking about you making tomes, and it's a really big cheese, like a a big mold, I think. And it's it kind of it's like a it's round. It's like a cylinder, but it's got round. It's doesn't it as rounded tops and bottoms, right? Like a like if a gouda had been like the shape of a gouda, which which is which is um, barreled out, like but it's huge. supposed to, yeah, but huge. Uh, and what I under I was I heard about these, but didn't know what I'd never heard of seen tom cheese or tom what I think it is in, in the store. And apparently, it's um, it's a it's a cheater cheese. I don't know if that's the right word, but in France, the the cheese makers don't want to make cheese seven days a week, and where they would normally use the milk fresh from the cow and from the morning's milking and the evening's milking to make cheese, or you know, we use it within twenty four hours. So over the weekend, they'll store the they'll milk the cows, store the milk, and then on Monday they'd make tome. So it's kind of like it's not the same quality cheese, but it's oh, interesting. Just because the milk is a little older when you start with right. It. And Gosh, a, and all the, like, unless you have a cow in your backyard, right. which you're allowed to do here in Portland, I've heard, really? if you get a permit. Oh. Um, I knew you could have chickens, but I didn't know you could have yeah, a cow. Yeah, with a permit, you can get a cow. Whoa. One cow. Wow. So we'll have to think about that one. <laughs> I hear they make miniature cows, too, now, so. Like Dexter's? Is that what it, Oh, I don't know. Uh, but I've uh, seen little mini- cows. Yeah. Let's <laughs> we'll have to look into that. I just read that recently. Wow. But anyway, what were we talking about? The um, tome. So. Oh, the tome. So, the, so unless you have a cow in your backyard, we all of us home cheese makers are using milk that is at least a day old, if yeah, not older. Yeah, unless you go go somewhere local and get it, which I've had I've been able to do a few times. I've, I told you about that yeah. place I've been to get raw yeah, milk. There's a few places, and I yeah. and I just met somebody else who has access to a cow yeah. as well. So. Yeah, so but now I'm well. It, that's so that's pretty cool. But I I think the the point I I I learned what tome was. That was the exciting part for me. And that uh, it, it's kind of like this. Um, if your cheese goes bad or gets a, this black mold on it, which a lot of tomes do, tomes do, then call it a tome and that and sell it like that. All that's right. What they said. But isn't everything we make a tome since we're using old milk? I'm not sure if it's the old milk, but that makes it. It's just it was just like this uh, this. Cheese we're making out of milk that would go to waste otherwise because we can't make camembert oh, out of it. Oh, interesting. Or, huh? Yeah. And then, um, what things did you learn about about milk? The milk that you get because I know we're, um, you know, it's okay to get milk from the store as long as it's not ultra pasteurized. That's the yeah. big no no for the home cheese maker. But did you get any other hints? There was, um, well, the the thing about the milk you get from the stores is homogenized. And they didn't really talk about that uh, because all their milk is either it's either comes pasteurized or they have to or they pasteurize it. Uh, they talked about heat pasteurization. There's two types of pasteurizations that are legal to use in America. Um, there's one where you just heat the milk to 145 for 30 minutes, and that's called vat pasteurization. And there's another one called um, high temperature. It, uh, I can't remember what this HTFS I think it was, but it has to do with um, 
heating the milk to 190 degrees for 15 seconds to pasteurize it. And that's if you're doing large quantities of milk, you would use a high temperature one. And if you're just doing a, a batch, uh, if you're doing a just getting a batch, you, you would use the the vat pasteurization to um, to operate the high temperature uh, pasteurizer. You need to be qualified, have to be licensed to do it. Because there's all these things you have to monitor to make sure it's getting to the right temperature for the right amount of time and then cooling down quickly enough. Did they talk about raw milk cheeses at all? Because in that case, you would not pasteurize them. Right. Milk, correct? Uh, they did. They, they said, well, as you probably know, that any um, raw milk cheese has to be aged for eight, 60 days before you can sell it in America. Uh, and that's so that if there are pathogens in it, they will live out their normal life cycle within the cheese while it's aging and then die and not okay. be a problem. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, they, they talk, so they didn't really talk, address, address like star, store-bought milk versus raw milk. Uh, but it's, it was gen, like in, in general, they, uh, owners of cheese maker would use raw milk as much as they could. And they would pasteurize when they had to in order to make a fresh cheese that wanted to be, they'd want to sell within, before 60 days expire. Okay, and it's interesting. I got a recipe for cheese from a Swiss cheesemaker. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make Swiss cheese, but he's from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And uh, and his recommendation was to get milk that's still warm from the cow. Like essentially, get the milk immediately, mix it with the starter and the rennet, and let it sit overnight, and then and then press it the next day. Yeah. But that he also said that that would be done in about four weeks. Um, so I guess that doesn't meet the rules, but right. Well, if you're doing it at home, it's fine. Exactly. So oh, that'd be fun to do because that then you're you're not using any starter bacteria, right? It's just using whatever's naturally in the milk from the cow. Which correct. Well, you yeah. still use well, you still use the a starter. He recommended yeah, okay. it's still a starter, and then and then the rennet. Okay. Um, but then let it sit overnight with rennet. Exactly. You're not. Super. You don't. Yeah. You just you just take the warm milk from the cow. You add the starter and then get the rennet in there and stir it for no more than 90 seconds, he said. Right. He said you should have everything measured out already and just right. pour the warm milk in there. Right. Stir it for no more than 90 seconds and then just leave it there for 24 hours. And That's then insane. And then, you're, and then you essentially go and and strain it and press it. with you any, cut it? And, or does you, you beat it up at all? And, no, he just said to, to uh, put, just... Put it in molds Scoop and let it, it out and put it in molds and then put about a wine bottle worth of pressure on top of oh, each one. That sounds like a really cool yeah, simple recipe. I know. We'll have to try it out. Yeah, yeah. Get some go find some gore milk. Yes. That's <laughs> I know. I went I went to every party after that asking everybody if they knew any cows. Oh, okay. Well it, oh, we should definitely try that sometime. That'd be fun. So what else? So looking at the the list of things you learned about, um, it says you learned some bee linens tricks. I'm very <laughs> curious there. So I before I on the last podcast I made a Munster cheese using bee linens, and I talked a lot about them. But they're they're these um, bacteria, uh, non-starter bacteria you add to cheese to make it stinky, um, it, like Munster, Tellagio, Limburger, all have these these this bacteria in it. It uh, ends up making a red coat on the outside of the cheese and uh, making it smell like stinky feet. I just smelled your Munster cheese, yeah, and I can stinks. attest that it, it has a certain pungent odor to it. Yeah, I hope it's good. Um, I hope it turns out all right, because it's. I'm a little worried about that. It's it's not turning red yet, or there's like two spots of red on it, and I don't think that's 
what was right. Anyway, uh, what I learned from that, I asked, so I, they said that what you usually do when you're making a Munster is to uh, spray on the Munster, the bacteria, bee linens afterward, after you've made the cheese and it's sitting and aging. Uh, and the idea is that um, in order for bee linens to work, the cheese can't be that acidic. And so you need to add um, geotrichium candium back, uh, mold, which is a, a mold that uh, grows on the surface of cheese and it's used in camembert making. Uh, it, and it acidifies the cheese so that, uh, for well, in this case, so that the bee linens can grow on it. Oh, interesting. So you'll do the... Very complicated word, mold. Yes, it's geocadmium, I think it's geo-something. So you'll, do you spray that on first, and then you spray the other? You can put that, you can that's you can either spray it on, or you can put it in the cheese milk. Oh. Okay. And the recipe I had, had you put the bee linens in the cheese milk. Uh, now, the bee linens need oxygen and salt in order to thrive. And so they don't get that in the cheese when they're stuck inside the cheese. But when they, you spray them on the surface or if they make the, whatever it is, ends up being on the surface after you've made the cheese. Okay. So it, it's throughout, but it's also on the surface yeah, then yeah, too. It's, it's the surface where they actually grow and, and do their magic of digesting whatever they do to make the cheese have its flavor. So they, they recommended starting off with a solution that is 3% salt and putting that on the surface of the cheese. Um, and that would encourage the, the, the geotrichium cadmium, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, candidum mold to grow uh, and deacidify de the cheese. And then later you you um, spray on the bee linens with a 10% salt solution, which would knock out everything except for the bee linens. Uh, and I hadn't, I, that's not what I had been doing with the cheese I'd made last time. So I, up to, I came back home and made a 10% solution and added some more bee linens to that and sprayed that on. Now I have a cheese that's really slimy and, and really stinky, stinky, really stinky. So maybe that's a good sign. So in other words, I'm just kind of processing that yeah. information. Yeah. So the, um, the geo, geo, geo yeah, yeah. um, you're adding that so that you're, you're kind of controlling which bacteria is going to grow. So you're, yes. you're figuring that some bacteria is going to grow on there. You want, the bacteria you choose to duke it out and win against the other bacteria while, and in the, in the meantime, or, or until you have a chance to spray on your bee linens right, and get right. that, get that growing on there. And then the bee linens are supposed to win over the geo right. cadmium. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, um, if it's not clear the the cheese is not naturally acidic. I mean, when you add the starter bacteria, that's to make the cheese more acidic. Uh, and that's this acidification helps the rennet to work better, so it coagulates better. That was one thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, I I know that the bacteria that are that are in starters they can help with the flavor, but what's actually happening there, and what are they doing versus what the rennet is doing? Right. Well, so they're making they 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 eat the lactose and spit out lactic acid, and they're slowly making the cheese more acidic. The acid helps the rennet do its job. So it helps it mix, uh, makes the rennet coagulate better. But then later on, the, the bacteria also, um, that lactic acid creates, is flavorful. And it, it'll, it'll keep, it'll keep uh, the bacteria will keep doing its, eating its lactose in the cheese, uh, making more flavor. And, and in fact, cheddar cheese gets its sharpness from the lactic acid that the starter bacteria are producing. 
And the bacteria also, when they, they'll eventually die while you're aging the cheese and spill out all their guts, which are full of en enzymes, which eat up all the eat proteins and cause other flavors to happen. That's kind of what happens during aging. It sounds gross, but it tastes good. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, before we knew all these science behind it, people have been making cheese for years with doing all these things and it, doing what was right to make it taste good. But now we just know what it is and we, we get all geeky about trying to reproduce it consistently. Yeah. But don't think too much about it. Yeah. It's kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> if you think so. I think it's pretty cool. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. But gross if you think about bacteria spilling yeah. your guts out on the thing yeah. you're about to eat. Yeah. We're kind of, but we live in a world with bacteria. And yeah. Like, we're all friends. Like uh, one of the quotes from Mary Rosenblum, who taught my first class, she said that making cheese, making wine, making beer, making vinegar are all ways of controlled spoilage. And that's, that's what we've been doing for what we've doing to make food for a long time. Like tofu or a, I guess thousand year old egg. Yeah. Have you ever had one of those? No. <laughs> yeah. Someday though. I yeah. Will. <laughs> Maybe when I'm a thousand year old. <laughs> so, just one more question sure, about yeah. the mesophilic starter or any yeah. of the starters. So they're eating up the um, uh, the lactose, the lactose yeah. in the milk, and then emitting lactic acid. Yeah. How long does that process take? Because, for example, when I make which cheese is it that I make that where you add the starter at the beginning? Maybe it's mozzarella, but you don't wait that long. Like you add. No, yeah, the mo like if you're doing the thirty minute mozzarella. Yeah. That you use um, citric acid, right? Oh, uh, yeah, and so that uh, that makes it happen really fast. I mean, it's just adding acid to your to your. That's true. Cheese. So you add that when the temp when it's at fifty five degrees, right? In fact, so, they, in, when we made mozzarella in class, they just added uh, acidic acetic acid, which is um, vinegar. Oh, okay. So uh, anything to make it more acidic. Yeah, this and that's just to make it so the uh, rennet will do its will coagulate. So when doing a cheese where you're using a starter mm -hmm. to introduce that acidity, how long do you have to wait after you add the starter before you add the rennet to make it acidic enough? Well, that's a good that's you know that's what you uh, that's a great question. The the I think the short answer is you need to wait long enough. And if you're being um, if you want to be really accurate, you need to get a pH meter. meter or a way to titrate to measure the titratable acidity, which has to do you take out the milk and you um, add a base until a you know a, a indicator turns pink, uh, which is that sounds like that work. There's a lot, of, but most people don't have a pH meter, no. and that's that's like a. I mean, I think I'm going to get one because I. It, I think after a while you need one with it. Like yeah. when you get it to a certain place with the home cheese, cheese making, if yeah. you're going to wing it, I think you need to have the pH yeah. meter to figure out how well you're winging it in the right. middle of it. And um, so that, I mean, that's how you do it. Yeah, that's how you would do it. But if you don't have it, then you just follow the recipe and you add the culture and you try and keep everything as consistent as you can. Keep it at, you know, one degree difference in the milk will, will double the, well, I don't know if that's the right number, but it'll increase the, or decrease the, activity of the bacteria quite a bit. Oh, so, interesting. So that's why you need wow, a really accurate... Wow, so it's really finicky. It can be yeah. really finicky. And the bacteria only decrease the pH or increase the acidity of just a little bit in that hour or half hour before you add the rennet. And it keeps doing it afterwards um, to make the cheese more tasty. But So it's, it's not, it doesn't do it much, but it does enough to, to make the rennet work better. But the other thing is the bacteria is it, like when you're making the mozzarella with citric acid... You don't get a very tasty cheese. I mean, it tastes 
cool. It's cool you made cheese, and it's it, it has the right texture, but it doesn't taste cheesy. It doesn't have that milky, that flavorful cheese right. flavor. Um, and that's, the, in addition to spitting out lactic acid, they spit out a whole bunch of stuff that, that makes it's good flavorful. flavor. It's flavorful, exactly. So there are quite a few different additives for cheese, but mm-hmm. like really they're centered on a few things. So one is the starter, mm-hmm. or the and can you use starter and culture interchangeably? Uh, what do you mean by culture? I think it's the same. Two, I think it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so there's the starter, and then there's alternatively, or or maybe in the same batch. I don't know if you'd ever use an acid and a starter oh. in the same batch. I'm not sure. I've never seen a recipe that calls for that. But um, yeah, I don't know either. Like, I mean, I guess you could if you if you're. I mean, you can do anything you want. Like, I, you, I guess, you, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I've never seen a recipe that does that. So there's the starter and or the acid. Yeah. The good, and yeah. then there's the rennet, of course, which yeah. causes the coagulation that you want to have happen. Right. Are there other functions that the rennet has besides coagulation? Well, it, rennet is just an enzyme. And it, uh, it during the aging process, it also does uh, affect, you know, it does affect the, the proteins and create flavor too. It's part of the cocktail and if you add you know blue mold or something else that also will affect the flavor so yeah it, although there's an, you don't really choose different rennets for their flavor you just want them to coagulate the coagulate the milk and right because i use the red vegetarian rennet and yeah. i don't know that i could tell the difference but i understand that it doesn't well I, we asked about that and the answer was that you know vegetarian rennet versus regular you know veal based or animal based rennet there's not that much they seem to coagulate just as well these days now okay. they've perfected it's more about effectiveness with yeah. rennet rather than getting a certain strain or something no like i don't that. think you, i don't yeah. think you, you just want it to work and i think classically animal rennet has been the gold standard for coagulation but now if you're if you're uh, if you're concerned about using animal products then yeah the, the vegetable rennets the the mold based rennets and the fungus fungus based rennets to work great too and did they have anything to say about liquid versus tablet rennet? Um, no, they did say that you should mix the rennet right before you use it, or dilute it right before you use it. So if you're diluting liquid down to, you know, add 20 times its volume with of water before you add it to the milk, do that right before you're going to add it because that it'll, it gets loses its potency. Okay. Uh, and if you're, if you're hydrating uh, powder rennet, um, same thing. Do it right before okay, you. Okay, just right before yeah. you do it. Get it, you know, get it well. When it, I've I've only used powder in it once, and it's like it, you kind of crush up the tablet, and um, you you know, make sure it's not chunky anymore. But but do it. Get it in as soon as it's uh, you know dissolved. Okay. So, yeah. So different additives for the cheese. So we've gone through starter yeah. and acid and rennet. Mm-hmm. Um. Another one is lipase powder. Yes. Oh, lipase. <laughs> and I, I never stuff. use it. It's it's animal derived, so I never use it in uh-huh. my mozzarella, even though it's recommended to add it for flavor. But I have no idea what it is or why I would want to use it. So lipase, it's an, an enzyme. I didn't realize it was animal derived. But yeah, uh, it's it's an enzyme that splits lipid fats in the, in the, in the milk. So there's these triglycerides, uh, which are these <laughs> fats with three fatty acids on it um, and it separates the um, the fatty acid from the fat molecule and that could produce a, a, a rancid smell or a rancid flavor and smell or a, 
or you know you also could think of that as a, a very flavorful sharp like parmesan uh the, the sharp flavor you get in parmesan comes from that action whether you add light base or not and i love sharp cheese and when i made my first sharp cheese uh, my gouda and uh, i made a man- manchego um i added light base to it because i wanted them to be sharp but they tasted and smelled sour and I realized now, in fact, I brought it, my cheese to, to the class so they they could see this or taste it and smell it, um, that it was because I added too much light paste or, or the fact I let it, added light paste at all. And that, because the uh, Gouda doesn't, you don't usually add light paste to the Gouda. Um, I was going to say, do you, like the, I didn't think you added light paste to Gouda. What cheese, did your, did the cheese recipes you had instructed to lose, use light paste? Because I've only seen it in the mozzarella. In fact, well, the, the Gouda recipe I had said it was optional. And I've seen it uh, called for in cheddar as optional and in Parmesan as optional and various recipes as optional. The light paste I bought, it was specifically um, labeled for Parmesan. Like it, was, like it was labeled sharp for Parmesan or something like that. Interesting. And, and as I tasted it, I realized... Oh, it, and after I realized it was light paste that was causing it, I tasted it, and it's like it didn't taste bad, but it tasted like the parm- like too much Parmesan flavor for the type of cheese it was, uh, and it was overpowering. And it, it, the the cheese wasn't bad, but it was overpowering. Um, and so I I realized that that was, was I realized my mistake and and what the cause was. Now I was pretty happy with that, even though the cheese wasn't good. I I learned why. Yeah. And then I have those two cheddars I have in my aging fridge. I think they have both have light paste in them. I'm afraid oh, they might have they the might same have... problem. But maybe if I age it long enough, it'll be more of a balanced flavor with the... Maybe so. Yeah. Let's well, hope so. I hope so. We'll yeah. find out in a, around Christmas time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So another another thing you add to as you're making the cheese is yeah. salt. Yes. And, and were there any... I mean, it seems like kind of, okay, salt is salt. You get the cheesemaker salt so that you're always measuring the same quantity yeah. as everybody else. But yeah. did were there any other hints there? Yeah. So um, have you ever seen cheesemaker salt? Like I the, have some. Do you? What, what just, is it like? Oh, it's just finer granules. It's, it's fine. Yeah. I thought it was I thought it was coarse like kosher salt. Well, no, I, guess, I guess I'm thinking... Um, so, for example, table salt, like, yeah. you know, the Morton's it's, it's table like salt. It's like little tiny cubes. It's, kind of, it's little cubes. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. And so kosher salt is a little Big, more flaky. Right. Which I guess you could say is coarse. It's like bigger pieces. Yeah, yeah. But then um, cheese salt, it's almost as if you took kosher salt and ground it down. So it's not hard little crystals, but it's also not big flakes. It's, is it? It's more homogenous size. Okay. Um, small bits like is it is, is, is fine as, is it finer than table salt or, or i think about the it's same? finer than i think it's finer yeah. than table salt okay that's what i've that's i've never seen it before i've never seen it so oh okay well you can I, have some of mine because yeah. i have quite a i want to i want to see what it, it looks like what so what i learned about it was that what's well, important in cheese making that you don't use table salt because it has iodine in it so you can use kosher salt which doesn't have iodine iodine in it but it's big flakes and you can't measure it consistently is right. the big point. Because there's nothing that special, I don't think, about cheese salt. Right. Other than that it's a consistent grain. It's, yeah, and it's fine so that it dissolves easily. The um, what I asked, they didn't have any cheese salt there, which I was surprised about. They they just used pickling salt, which, oh. is, which is about is, is exactly the feel. It's the same thing. It seems, well, it's, um, it has no iodine in it, but it's... Um, 
the same granularity as table salt, right? And so it's, it's the tiny little cubes of salt, you know, you, like sand or salt. Yeah. Um, and she said that uh, the only reason you need cheese salt, which is this fine powder, that's how she described it too, uh, is if you're making cheddar, like in uh, somewhere like Tillamook, where they're making big blocks of cheddar and they need to have the salt evenly distributed very consistently. If you're doing it at home, use pickling salt um, and uh, and you also weigh, use uh, weigh by or measure by weight because yes. that's always consistent. Exactly. And I think that's the other reason why we got the cheese salt is that so we could measure a quarter yeah. teaspoon or a half teaspoon and know that we we're being accurate with that. Yeah, because you want to match. if you're going to weigh it, then you can get anything. Even, right. you know, you can go to the grocery store and get non-iodized salt right. and and you could use that as long as you weigh it. Right. And so I... I um, I've like took a cup of, co- I always have kosher salt around cause I cook with it all the time. So I always, I took a, I figured out what a, a cup of that weighed and compared it to, um, just a regular table salt. And I found that it was like 80% of teaspoon of kosher salt is weighs the same as 80% of, uh, how did that work? It was, it had 80% of the weight of, of table salt. And so I always add an extra fifth or reduce it by a fifth to, compensate when i'm using kosher salt that was a smart way to do it yeah um yeah so but she said that the, the, the you don't need that for home cheese making uh the the super fine cheese salt uh it's it, you, you just use something else and you measure by weight and just as long as it doesn't have iodine so i think i think that's all the additives so yeah. so let's just do a quick review of them so we learned about starter and acid and adding right. those at the beginning right and then Lipase is optional and finicky, as you've learned. Yeah, yep. And then you get to the rennet, and it's more about getting something that's effective and making sure it stays effective right. while you do it. Right. And then um, we just talked about salt and what you know the learnings around salt right. were. And so you just want to make sure that you're able to measure that consistently. Right, right. And not have iodine in it. And then I think, and then after, you know, after you've pressed the cheese, there there are things you can spray on the outside. So right. we talked about the different bacteria and the, the bee molds. linens and things like that that yeah. you would you would add. You could add the the blue mold or the white mold, and it's those I've, the recipes I follow for blue mold have always added the blue mold to the cheese milk. You don't spray that on. Right. Um, yeah, you can inject it in there. Yeah. So any other learnings around? So that that's kind of the last additive that that I know about of of what you do once the cheese is pressed and you want to get it to grow a certain mold or, or do something that you want um they you know they um the only thing i noticed when they did their camembert is they they brined them rather than direct salted them you know dry salted them which i did with my camembert when i made it and it ended up being too salty so maybe that's a trick i could learn oh so you tried to dry salt and it was a little too yeah. much and they used the brine did they were they able to reuse the brine multiple times on these camemberts or? uh they used one batch of brine for all the camemberts it's it's you do want to if you can um, either add some whey to your brine or uh, or add some vinegar to your brine to make it more acidic because of it by if you just make salt and water mixture it's neutral and it doesn't match the pH of the cheese and so if you add um, so if you if you either reuse the brine like through through many cheeses eventually it'll get down to the cheese's uh, pH and that's good because it doesn't try and leach the pH, leach the acid out of, out of the cheese. So can you just store your brine solution for a while? I mean, it's yeah. super salty, so it should keep oh, yeah. fairly well. So Especially you can just keep it in, you know, a Tupperware or something? Yeah, I do. Um, and, if and, you know, in adult, 
if it's a saturated brine solution, then you, nothing's going to grow in it. Which you know, saturated being a, there's there's still salt falling out the bottom because there's so much salt in it. And then once a year, you can use it to brine a turkey. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd ever go back after using it for a turkey. That's. <laughs> No. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think that would be the end of the line yeah, for, that, yeah. for that brine solution. Yeah, so maybe once once in a while you have to plan in some um, right. use of a brine solution. And I probably would boil it and maybe filter it a bit between yeah. if if there's chunkies in it. If it's yeah. too chunky, but if it if it has a uh, you know a little bit of milkiness to it, I think that's fine. I think that's that means it's uh, it it will work better as a brine. Interesting. Yeah. I, that's something I definitely didn't know. So it's, I think we've we've gone through some of the major steps. What when you have it all done, did they teach you anything about how to know if it's good or bad? Because I know especially with yeah. cheddar, you you dip it in the wax and then you're just kind of hoping. <laughs> it's kind of a one of the things that's both fascinating and worrying about cheese making is it feels kind of high stakes when you're doing yeah. a hard cheese. You know, like you're you have faith in that okay well i hope this turns out and i like i i got into it thinking i would make cheese gifts for people but i realized that once i've made it i'm not so sure that it's going to turn out so you know three months ahead of time i could be making cheeses for christmas but i realized i don't trust it to be yeah it might work out away so how do you are there any tricks that you learned for being able to tell if if it's good you know that was kind of a disappointing i well, I asked. I asked. You know, is there anything you can look for in a cheese to know if it's if it's bad? And she, uh, Elizabeth Goddard just kind of. I think she was. I don't know if she was afraid to to give me a bunch of pointers because um, if if you know something was was wrong, then you're then you you kind of in you're liable. I mean, if, if you say like if you don't see any of these things, then then your cheese is fine. Then you're. You're, you're, she said there's no there's nothing you, she actually she ended up just saying no there's nothing you can you can do to, to know other than culturing it up in a lab bummer yeah um, so like there's like a coliform there's a coliform bacteria that can build and it can make uh, the you know the holes that form in, in Swiss cheese those that, that comes from CO2 that should come from the I think it's propionic bacteria it, those things, same CO two, could come from something else that's that's nasty. It's a pathogen, and you, you can't tell the difference unless you culture it up in a lab. So I, I took a you know I said it's kind of a bummer. You, there's nothing really to look for to see if your cheese is bad, but you also people have been making cheese for years, and you know thousands of years, and and have relatively low problems with it. I would I just took away that you want to get a good sanitary situation going on when you're making cheese. Sanitize all your utensils. Take, take as many precautions as you can to to make your cheese that you're going to put a lot of work into or age for a long time, put a lot of work into as safe as you can. But then you're probably, unless it tastes bad, you're probably, it, you're probably fine. <laughs> in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Well, we're, all, we're both still alive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still enjoying the cheese. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you have something here also about um, your blue cheese received high praise. Yeah, yeah. we should um, we should uh, maybe we should uh, get some my cheese out. <laughs> um, yeah, my first blue cheese. Well, it was my second blue cheese I made. The first one I was still aging. Uh, my first Stilton uh, after four months I brought down there and it's turned out pretty pretty tasty. Um, we well, I think I think we'll, uh, we should we should bring some down and 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 try it. Okay, yeah. Well, let's do that. Okay, we'll be right back. 
Well, so. I love I love your idea of an on air tasting. So <laughs> we we just um, went over to the kitchen and you cut a piece of your gouda or howda yes. or howda. My my dad's actually Dutch, and so oh, he, and does he say howda? No, he, oh. he, he says he told me that uh, some people, depending on what region of, of Netherlands you're in, it's either hard or soft G. But he he, he says howda when you ask him to pronounce it in Dutch. Oh, howda. Well, there but, we go. So yeah. we have some howda. Yeah. This is the one where you feel like the lipase was a little it, much. Yeah. yeah. And then we also got some of your blue, which received rave reviews from your from classmates. My classmates. Yeah. All right. It, so I'm going to start with the with the howda. Okay. And I don't think it tastes bad at all, but I do. I do taste a little kind of a um, what was, what would be a good word for it. It's definitely tangy. Yeah, tangy a certain is, tang yeah. to it. And, um, I mean, if you could imagine Parmesan mm-hmm. and just like the one flavor of Parmesan that makes it um, tangy and... Exactly, yeah. And, uh, it kind of sticks on your tongue a yeah. little bit. It doesn't taste good like Parmesan. Yeah. Like it's like a whole well-rounded flavor. It's funny because I can see how this would be characterized as sharp. Because... Mm-hmm. In Parmesan, you might call this a sharp flavor, but yeah, you know, here I now that I think more about it, I would say tangy is a better word than sharp. Yeah, for the flavor that you get. So, so it's definitely not what you'd call a standard gouda. No, but I still I still enjoy it. I think it's good. I hope you're just being nice. <laughs> I'm not just being nice. I mean, everyone says it's good, but I, I, I'm just, I was very disappointed with this cheese. Oh, I think so. you should rename it. <laughs> rename it something. Something. I don't know yeah. what yet. Maybe now, a soft Parmesan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. But, yeah, I, well, it's not cheese I would serve proudly to my guests. Although it's like, it's, you're pr- always proud to say that I made this. And, mm-hmm. and I think if you rename it, you get away with it. <laughs> Maybe. So I just tried a bite of the blue, and mm-hmm. it is outstanding. Yeah, no. So it's one of the nice, one of the cool things about it is yellow. It's so uh, it t- can turn out a nice yellow color. That's from, true from the raw milk. Mm, um, it's delicious because it's not, it's not too sharp. It's not too stinky. No, it's, it's just like this nice, mild, but flavorful. It's and wonderful. Creamy. Yeah, really. It's, it's not. It's not one of those um, moist blues mm-hmm. or the spreadable blues. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, this is really, and it's good by itself because a lot of times I'll feel like I mm-hmm. need to cut the flavor of blue cheese with a cracker or having something with it. Yeah. This is just right, just flavorful enough and a good flavor. Yeah. And yeah. It, you know, actually, the, now we get to that. We, one of the things, um, as soon as Lisbeth got it, tried this, she said, "You got to try. You have to um, remember everything you did when you made your cheese, so you can do it again." And that was one of the the points they made. Maybe that's the number one thing I should take away from the class is that you need to take good notes. Not so that when you screw up, you can go back and figure out where you went wrong, although that's important um, and useful. Uh, It's that when you do something right and you come up with something really good, you have to go back and duplicate that because that's your your money cheese. True. So a cheese journal is very important. Take, Take good notes while you're making it. If you're like... Take the temperatures you you got to, how long it took to get there, your pH if you have a pH meter, uh, how long you aged it, what you did during the you know, when, how much mold you added, uh, whatever. Uh, so, I wish I'd taken better notes when I made this cheese, but this is uh, this is one of my first cheeses, so yep. I was very lazy. I still am lazy, but I I promise to do better. 
Well, good job with it. Yeah. You can impress lots of people with it. <laughs> so what's what's next up now for your cheese making? Well, that's a good question. You know what I really want to make is um there's a one one of the things I really want to make is um raclette, I think it's pronounced, which is a um it's a another washed rind cheese, uh, but it's also very it's not spreadable. It's more of a. I think it's a, it's also a washed curd cheese where where it's a more creamy texture. It's it's about the same um, hardness as a as a Swiss cheese. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, like everyone, when you say like they imagine it like you having it warmed by a fire or something. Right. Yeah, because they have. Have you seen the whole raclette set before? No. No. Oh, so there's a whole. Um, let's see if I can do this justice. Yeah. With a verbal description, but it's a. Um, it's kind of a squarish or ovalish uh, type appliance, and there's a heating element um, that's right in the middle. So there's a lower level of this oval or or rectangular type thing. There's a lower level, and it has little pans that you slide in and out, and you, that's where you put the cheese. And the cheese is melted by this heating element that's just above it. The heating element also heats a griddle on the top, so you can put vegetables and potato, you know, oh. potatoes, and I guess meats too. Um, so you're heating all these vegetables. So what you do is you have your little tray for your raclette Mm -hmm. and you stick it underneath the heating element. You're putting your vegetables on top and then you take the vegetables off and pour the cheese over it. And so that's, that's what you have. It's like a a special meal. So kind of like an alternate version of fondue. It's also done in Switzerland. Right. Okay. That's yeah. Very neat. And it's like, um, I bought some from a local grocery and, and it's definitely, it's stinky, but not too stinky. But in the cheese making book I had that I, where I learned about this cheese, you um, you can fry it like a pancake, like slice it, and make and fry it in a pan, and oh. it makes a it makes this um, make that bubbles up and turns to like a parmesan cracker. But except it's it's a, it's more soft than that, and it, but it makes a cracker like pancake. Mm, that sounds delicious. And it was I made it, it was really I really liked it, but mm. it stunk up the house. My oh really Caroline couldn't didn't, Caroline my wife didn't really like it. Oh. That sounds so, like a good idea to me, though. I, yeah. I would love that. And <laughs> yeah. I like raclette a lot. So that sounds like a good challenge. That'd be fun to me. The other thing, when I was a kid, there was this, um, I remember having, it, when we went, our family would go to the coast, this port wine cheddar. And it was, it was, a, it was this chi- this cheese and it was, um, it was almost spreadable like, um, like cream cheese, but, but it also had that graininess of cheddar and it was infused with this port wine. So it was this red it almost looked like red Play-Doh, like orange Play-Doh, and uh, but it was really tasty. I, I'd like to figure out how to make that. I've never seen a recipe for it. I don't think I've ever seen it again. Interesting. Since I was I've a kid. seen stuff like that, and I always think of it more as processed cheese. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's really tasty, like at parties and things. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that is made of. If you just make a soft cheese, essentially, but it needs to have you know pretty be, strong flavor to it. Right, and, and you get that from, from normally you get that from holding it long or around for a while, and that's hard to do if it has a lot of moisture in it. So mm. yeah, I wonder maybe if it's I'm, a cheese product or a real cheese. Yeah, was I? Yeah, I'm not chasing after some fake cheese, but mm-hmm. or maybe I can make something that's. I'd like to figure out. To, that's one of my one of my goals to try and figure out oh how to that make sounds that. like a good challenge yeah cool so what other learning opportunities are up ahead I assume that at the end of the class they told you what you could do next yes okay so there's another cheese this was class was as I said it was supposed to be basic just to get you going on cheese and I knew and asked about a, a, 
a follow-up class. There's another class coming up in March at uh, Washington State University. In, uh, where is that again? I don't know. It's it, it's in Eastern Washington. Oh, in... Um, in Pullman. It's in Pullman. Pullman. Yeah. And uh, they apparently... Um, they used to teach this cl- same class up there, but the feedback they got from their students was um, they didn't want to be bothered with all the chemistry behind the cheese making. And so they've separated out into two classes where they taught teaching this one down here in Oregon state and they're teaching the advanced cheese making up there. And that's going to happen in March and they're going to go into more of the chemistry. Some of the stuff I'm really interested in and I'm not sure if I'll be able to make it or not, but I'd like to be able to go. That would be interesting. Yeah. That's definitely what I, I like learning about all that interesting stuff. And the American cheesemakers are coming to Washington in not too long, too, right? Yeah, the American Cheese Society are in next August are having their convention uh, in Seattle. So uh, I'm I'm hoping to make that. And apparently, uh, one of the my classmates was at one of these uh, conventions, and uh, he said that after the convention, because all the artisan cheesemakers from all over the country go to this, and they bring tons of their cheese that are there to be judged enter enter the judging uh, because you know if you have a cheese that wins the competition it's, it's a good marketing uh, badge to have uh, so apparently after the show's over you can go and buy enormous amounts of cheese for incredibly cheap wow like, yeah sounds like, like a good deal to me yeah so if nothing else go up there if you I mean if you go to the conference you can go chase all the cheese anyway but if you go to this warehouse sale afterwards you go home with a bunch of cheese wow all right well yeah. I'll keep an eye out for that yeah yeah we'll have to, we'll have to see if we can do another field trip <laughs> cool well this is this class sounded really great and I'm so glad that you were able to to share what you learned with me and with everybody else it's yeah been really nice yeah it's been fun yeah it's been a great it was a great experience um and I, I it wouldn't. It's not the kind of class I would take again because you know once you've done it, you've 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 gotten the plus. But I, it was a, a good step for someone like me who really wanted to get into the into the science and and get a little bit more intense about cheese making. I also would, uh, you know, during the class they uh, kind of encouraged me and everyone else to become an artist. All the home cheesemakers, you should you should think about becoming an artist and cheesemaker because I think that that kind of puts a little feather in their cap. They like to see that happen. And I would say, like, even if I if I never become a professional or a production cheesemaker, I'm going to be buying their cheese. The people who do make that. So I and I'm also uh, know a lot more about cheese and, and get other people excited about buying local artisan cheese. So even if I don't ever become an artisan cheesemaker, I think there's still room for people like us in classes like that. I think so. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It's been a great show. Thanks for joining us, Debbie. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. It was okay. a great time. Well, once again, we'd like to thank Debbie Driscoll for coming and joining us for the Joy of Home Cheesemaking podcast. Find us on the web at joyofcheesemaking.com and email us at podcast at joyofcheesemaking.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Now go home and make some cheese. Cheese.